The text for the sermon this day is taken from the gospel lesson as well as that first reading from Acts. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, last night was quite a bit of a whirlwind. Not as so, I'm a little bit, got a little bit easier coming in today than yesterday. Yesterday, for those who don't know, I got to church at 537 coming in from Chicago. So that was, <laughs> um, so it was quite, a, so I got, got here, robed up, wait, greeted people, went into work, <laughs> did services. So, and by the way, last night we, we did um, evening prayer, which I'm going to talk about a little bit here where I had to make sure the lights were shut off, made sure the candle was in the back, and so we could do the full service of light. But the conference, some of the service that we had last night was kind of, because I knew what the conference was going to be like, and so I wanted, was hoping if some of the kids stayed, away, stayed around, or their parents, they were exhausted, so one kid stayed behind. But um, they would kind of hear some of it, and the hymn that we sang, we praise you and acknowledge you, that was the opening hymn for the divine service. And that was one where they did it. They bring out the, they had the orchestra, and you're hearing the drums. Yeah, it just sends chills down. Yeah, it's, it's really, really awesome. And the kids thought the same. But anyway, so evening prayer, the way the service began, or the way we began our service last night, and I tried to figure out a way to do it here, but it doesn't work as well in the morning. But it begins, it goes back to the very ancient days of the church. The church would gather in complete darkness. See, they would gather in catacombs. They'd gather in houses. They wouldn't gather in places like this because they had to hide. They were being hunted down. They were being executed for their confession that Jesus is the Christ who was crucified, died, buried, and risen from the dead. And so they'd gather in the darkness, in those catacombs, and if you're wondering, no, they did not get 9 a.m. or 10.30, or 10.30 a.m., whichever is your preferred time, or 8 a.m. if that was your preferred. They did not get that. No, they usually had to have worship at either midnight or 4 a.m. Why? Because the sun wasn't up. They had to make sure it was pitch black so that nobody could know what they were doing and where they were doing it. And so they'd gather in that darkened room and there would be one single candle and it would start in the back of the sanctuary or the back of the church, or the catacombs, or wherever they were at. And the priest would say, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. The congregation would respond, because they say it all the time, they do it by heart. The light no darkness can overcome. And then the candle would go farther, stop in the middle. Stay with us, Lord, for it is evening, and the day is almost over. And they go a little bit farther. And I don't have the last part memorized. I had it the other service. But they chant again. And then they get to the top, and this ancient hymn that dates probably to the late first century 
or early 2nd century, possibly possibly to the time of the apostles. They'd see that candle lifted high above their head, and they'd hear the words, Joyous light of glory of the immortal Father. That's what's known as the false hilaron. And see, the reason they would do this is because think about the life they're in. Why are they in darkness? Because they, are, they do not want their service interrupted by soldiers. They want to make it all the way through. And they're living in a reality where they are being hunted. Their friends, their, their relatives, they're being executed. Brothers, sisters, parents. And sometimes, to make it even worse, the ones who were carrying out the executions were their parents, were their children, were their friends. Imagine living in a world like that. And so as they were gathered in that darkness, that single candle, no matter how dark that room would be, that candle would still shine bright. As a reminder that no matter how dark the world may be around them, the light shines in the darkness. Christ shines in the darkness. And the darkness cannot overcome him. So James and John, in our gospel lesson, made a request. They made a request that they would sit on the left and on the right of Jesus in his glory. Now James and John were one of the three privileged apostles. They got to see some of the things that no one else got to see. So like when Jesus went in to raise Jairus' daughter, it was Peter, James, and John who came in with him. When Jesus went up to the Mount of Transfiguration and he was glowing a glorious white, a brightness, a whiteness that no bleach could ever bleach, they were the ones that got to bear witness to this. And in fact, that happened just a few days before this text. And so they're thinking, oh, man, that's Jesus? Could you imagine sitting in, his, in a throne next to him? I mean, we're not going to get as good of a throne as he does, but man, we're going to get a pretty cool one. So that way, whenever people are looking at Jesus, they can't help but see us in the corner of our, their eyes. That's what they're thinking. But Jesus says, you do not know what you are asking are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Now in their minds, they're thinking, oh, yeah, we could drink cups. You know, I don't know, maybe it might be dirty. We could drink from it. Or the baptism, they're probably imagining the baptism that John the Baptist did at the Jordan River. Like, yeah, we could do that. That's no problem. That's easy. But that is not what Jesus is talking about. See, there's one other time when Jesus talks about drinking a cup. And that is in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he asks for the cup to pass from him. 
the cup of his suffering, the cup of his crucifixion. See, what the two, what James and John were asking, and they did not understand, is that they were asking to be on the left cross and on the right cross. Not quite the glory they want. See, our Lord is not, the glory of Jesus is not the glory you expect. Now, God is glorious. If you, the absolute glory of God, you could not even bear. That's why there's a kind of a funny, I don't know if you've ever seen a, there's a, a website known as the Babylon Bee. And there is a church, there's a joke where it says, one church kept on singing, show me your glory for God. And then God shows it and they're instantly dead. So you don't actually want to see the full glory of God as immortal. But the glory, when was Jesus' glory, the second person of the Trinity, was not in the moment when he was glorious and bright shining, but when he laid aside all of his power, when he was stripped, he was humbled, he was being humiliated. You know, there's this weird thing that's happened in the history of the Lutheran Church. In the Lutheran Church, somehow or another, we have gotten away from the crucifix. So when we were at, we were at higher things, they had, a, they had a crucifix elevated high above the altar. So crucifix is a cross with the body of Jesus hanging on it. Their processional cross had the same thing. Had a cross, body of Jesus on it. They actually matched. And the reason why Lutherans kind of got away with, from it is we kind of let other faith traditions influence us. So there's another faith tradition, the Calvinist tradition. They cannot do crucifixes because their belief is that you cannot see any image of Jesus. So this is why I know Calvinists who will not watch the Passion of the Christ because you cannot see anything that even remotely represents Jesus. They won't even allow paintings of Jesus. That's why they don't have stained glass windows because you cannot have any, they're taking a very strict understanding of no graven images. Well, Lutherans and, these, and the Calvinists, they were together in the 1800s. And so the ideas kind of bled over that we shouldn't have them, and we started to come up with our own interpretation. And our interpretation was that, well, the empty cross means that he is risen. Well, there's a problem with that idea. When Jesus was taken down from the cross, was he alive? No, he was dead. The cross was empty. Jesus was dead. And guess what? The cross on the left and the right also became empty. And they were also dead. See, the reality is, is when we take away the crucifix, we lose something. One is we lose the weight of our sin. We lose how ugly our sin is. You see those nails. You see those thorns. You see what he did. See, the weird in our culture, we have been able to so desensitize ourselves to the cross, we can use it to advertise just about anything. 
You see crosses everywhere from people who don't believe in Christianity at all. They think it's a bunch of hogwash, but they love a pretty cross. That's how empty the meaning has become. But when you see the body of Jesus hanging on there, you cannot escape from what it is. It's your sin. He went there because of you. Because of every last sin that you committed in thought, word, deed. But you also, well, it shows you the law, it shows you the weight. It also shows you his gospel. So the last hymn that higher things, which is actually the theme hymn for next year, is this, the hymn is, Oh love, how deep, how broad, how high, beyond all thought and fantasy. If you have a hymnal at home, I encourage you to go look up that hymn and just read it. If you don't have a hymnal, buy one. You can actually get one on Kindle, so if you want to do it easy, you want to do an electronic version. <clears throat> but in the last verses, you start getting to these words. It says, for us baptized, for us agonized, for us, for us, for us. And when you read that, replace us. And as you're reading it, read, for me. For me, he was baptized. For me, he was tempted. For me, he was betrayed for me for me for me or as it will be proclaimed as for you he did it so when you look upon that crucifix you see that cross and you see the body of jesus even look at the painting right there the jesus paintings look at the bread the blood that's coming down his brow that is for you you see the the hole in his hands from the nails that was for you. You see the crown of thorns on his head. That is for you. You see the nails in his feet. That is for you. You see him hanging on the cross for six hours. That is for you. He died that you may have life. That your sin may be washed, buried, left behind, never to be seen again. That's why he went to the cross. That is the love that he has for you. A love beyond all fantasy. Beyond all imagination. But James and John made a request to be on that left and on that right. And so he says, the cup which I, that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. See, he was telling them exactly what's going to happen to them. See, the road, the time would pass, the first person to drink that cup, to be baptized with this particular baptism, would be a man named Stephen. The first of the apostles would be James executed, confessing, bearing witness. Because that's what the word martyr means. It literally means witness. They bear, died bearing witness that Jesus Christ 
died and rose from the dead, and they were willing to be sliced up by a sword for the sake of others, that they may know that Christ is Lord and that they may have life in him because they had life in him. You are called to be a witness. Now, you may not die a martyr's death. Hopefully, that will never happen in this country, but it could. There are people around the world who do live in countries like that. The average is about 11 every hour die for the Christian faith somewhere around the world. Places like North Korea, where which is... I don't know how many years running the le world leader for executions of Christians. China, Christians are persecuted. Much of the Middle East. Nigeria has been particularly rough for the, over the last several years. Being a Christian is illegal in many countries. And yet there are Christ we, have, we have missionaries there. Bearing witness to the gospel. If you don't believe me, go talk to Garrett, missionary Gary. He could probably give you names of people who are in places like Iran, in China, North Korea. He might be able to give them to you. He might not because he doesn't want to put them in danger. You live in a... We have gotten... We are coming out of this pandemic. You have a taught job to bear witness. We are opening up. We could definitely be going back to normal things. There's baseball games, there's, go there's football games, well not football, football will be coming. There is, we just came back from a conference where there was over 500 youth. Guess what, we even, all of us even took from the Common Cup. Which by the way, in case you don't know, the Common Cup is not that dangerous. I know we don't trust the CDC these days, but they said it is safe. They've already examined it 20 years ago. You're more likely to get sick touching a doorknob. But you are, we, it is a time to come out, to call people back to the word. To call people back to hearing Christ, receiving his supper. If there was ever a year that we were reminded of our mortality, it was this one. We were reminded how much we could, be, we could lose things. And somehow as we've come out of it, we still don't have Christ at the center. Somehow we came out of it and we went right back to our idols and went right back to serving them and left Christ aside. We have come out. We have taken, everything was taken away. Everything can be taken away. So we turn and we look on him. We point to him. We bear witness to him. In September, the hope is our congregation, first off, we'll have rally day, and hopefully if all things work and weather behaves, we'll do it at Moorhead Park. Secondly, the week after, hopefully, we will take part in what all the nation is doing 
and that is Welcome Back Sunday. Because every year, churches tend to diminish in attendance in the summer because of vacations and stuff like that. The exceptions are if you're in a vacation town. And so they're like, all right, summer's over. Come back to church. Come back to worship. Well, this year will be the biggest Welcome Back Sunday because we're not telling people just come back from summer. We're telling people come back from the pandemic. You cannot withdraw from the body of Christ that long. You cannot withdraw from his word. You cannot withdraw from his sacrament that long and your faith stay intact. You have to realize that one day you are going to die. We don't know how, but it's going to happen. So we have to get over and come to Christ. And hear his word. Receive his gifts. And guess who's the one that's to call people back? You. It's you. all of you. We have 900 members. Imagine if each of you picked one person every week good chance we would get to every single member of this congregation within two months. If you leave it at the pastors, we have to do, if we even cut it in half, that's 450 per person, per pastor. All of you need to step up. Besides, we can't sit with them during church. You can. Invite. Not only the people who are, not, who are members, but even people who have no church home. People have been estranged. Bear witness to the gospel. Bring the love of Christ that you have received. You are his child. You are his heir. You are a child of paradise. What greater news is there to bear witness of? Be his witness. In your work, in your families, on the golf course, at school when you get there, even if it's at college. Bear witness. And yes, like Iowa State, since we got two Iowa Staters, at least I can see, that's a huge mission field. You're a witness. May we all be witnesses. In Jesus' name, amen. The grace, peace, and mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, keep you in the one true faith, to life everlasting. Amen. We continue with the